Well, before we begin our time in God's Word, I want to make just a few brief announcements. Uh, Many of you know we've had uh, several home goings in our church recently, and I want to make you aware of two memorials tomorrow on Monday. Uh, Francis Goslin's service will be here at Wayside in the Worship Center at 11 o'clock tomorrow. And then Elliot Anderson, whose memorial we had uh, just at the end of last week, will be having his graveside, his internment at Fort Sam at 145. And you're invited uh, to come to both of those if you want to show your support for the family. Another uh, announcement I want to make is many of you have been praying for our search as we've been looking for our men's and leadership development pastor to replace Don Yates, who went to be senior pastor of a church in Chicago area. And next Sunday, we will have our candidate, Stephen Lay, here. He'll be preaching in both services next Sunday, so I invite you to come. Uh, The search committee, the elders, the pastoral team are all unanimous in naming Stephen as the candidate for this position. So uh, with God's leading, and if everything goes well next weekend, we'll be extending a call to Stephen Lay to join our church staff. So please continue to be in prayer for next weekend and that God would finalize all the details of that process and their move here, if that's God's will for our church. Well, President Franklin Roosevelt was said to have hated the receiving lines in the White House. He would um, complain that as people came through the lines at White House receptions, that they would gush and small talk was made, but he said nobody really paid attention to what was being said. And to prove his point, the story goes that one week he said, uh, I'm just going to um, see if people are really listening. And so he decided that as individuals came through the receiving line, he would shake their hand vigorously. He would give them a great big smile. And he would murmur at them, I murdered my grandmother this morning. (laughs) Always shaking their hand. And he said as he did this, people came through the line and they said, Keep up the good work, Mr. President. We're proud of you. God bless you, sir. And he said it wasn't until near the end of the line that somebody actually listened to what he said. As he murmured these words, I murdered my grandmother this morning, shaking the hand of the Bolivian ambassador. He paused. His eyes got a little large. And then still grasping Roosevelt's hand, he leaned in and said, I'm sure she deserved it, sir. Now, whether urban legend or not, that story speaks of the truth of how few of us really listen to what is being said. And as we turn in our Bible to the end of James chapter 1 today, what we're going to see is where God calls on us not only to listen more carefully to what is being said, but he also calls on us to pay attention to other things that are important in our walk with God. I want you to look with me at James 1, 19 through 27. It tells us there, this you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, 
not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now, as we read this passage, we see that James is again speaking to those who are already saved, those who are Christians. He uses the address, beloved brethren. These Christians that he was writing to in the first century, you'll recall we saw back when we began this book in James chapter 1, verse 1, he spoke of the the saints who were scattered, those who were going through the diaspora, the, the Jewish believers in many cases who, because of the persecutions taking place, were driven out of their homes, away from their livelihoods. Uh, many were losing not only all that they had, but even their lives. Now, the normal human reaction to this type of injustice that they were suffering, the same injustices that we see on the news today with the persecutions taking place in the Middle East, are to be angry. And as we think about being angry, sometimes people think that this is a a wrong or an inappropriate reaction. But in the Bible, we are actually commanded at times to be angry. Ephesians 4.26 tells us, be angry and yet do not sin. We see cases where our Savior, Jesus Christ, was angry. In Mark chapter 3, verse 4, Jesus, you'll recall, was in a synagogue service one week. And as they brought in a man that they wanted to trap Jesus by having him heal this guy on the Sabbath, it says that Jesus was angry, angry at these religious leaders because of the hardness of their heart, that they cared more about their rules, more about their rituals than they did about the people that God cared for. We see another instance in John chapter 2 where Jesus made a whip and he drove the money changers out of the temple. God's house of prayer had been turned into a place of merchandising. And he, he exhibited this righteous anger as he drove them out. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, you know, Roger, that sounds a, a little bit like uh, some road rage type of anger. That Jesus is there and suddenly he, he explodes. But if you read the text, what you will see is that it is not at all what was happening. Jesus was fully in control the entire time. He saw a wrong, he moved to right the wrong, and when it was over, he stopped. He had a purpose to his action. And as we think about anger, as we read what James tells us here, he says that the anger that most of us have does not accomplish the purpose of God. Aristotle once said, anyone can become angry, but to be angry with the right person to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, and in the right way, that is not easy. Now, it's not easy, but it's possible if we as Christians have Christ controlling our lives, and then we will be able to be angry and not sin. A little later in this passage, James speaks of a, a place where our anger often shows up, which is with our tongue. He says in verse 26 that we need to learn to bridle or control our tongue. The picture here is of keeping a tight rein on it. I don't know if you've ever had the experience as I have of being on a a, a horse that is in a runaway situation, that is at a full speed gallop. And, and, you know, you know that this wild ride may not end well. And you're trying to pull back, rein in that horse and get control of it. 
And this is the picture that he has for us. He says that we are to bridle our tongue. We are to control our tongue. When we get to James chapter 3 and verses 5 through 6, he's going to speak about our tongue again and how it is like uh, something that creates a raging fire. And again in the news, we see vivid pictures of the wildfires that are out of control burning in several states in our country that are just decimating areas. And he says this is what happens when anger in our tongue gets out of control. Here he says our tongue is is like a runaway horse. It will take off on a wild ride if we don't keep a rein on it. If you take the word anger and you just add one little word to the front of it, add a D to anger, you get the word danger. And that's what happens when our anger is out of control. Instead of doing things our way, instead of trying to right things our way, God says that he has a purpose and he has a way to do it. In Hebrews 10.30, God says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. As James talks about anger here, he pairs it with the purposes of God. And he says, our normal human reaction, our normal uh, out-of-control anger that we demonstrate is not going to accomplish what God wants. You'll recall as we've gone through this series in James, we've seen that James is speaking about the purposes of God, about the refining process in the lives of believers and how God is at work in us developing and growing us to maturity. And here what he tells us is some things that can short-circuit our maturity, things where when we're angry, when our tongue is out of control. In verse 21, he talks about something else that will block the growth that God wants in us, which is when we let the wrong things grow in the garden of our heart. He says in verse 21, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. When he says to put aside, he, the, the Greek word that is used literally was spoken of taking dirty clothes that you were wearing and removing them and laying them aside to be cleaned. And this is what he says. When we have these things in our life that do not belong, filthiness, wickedness, you can picture any number of moral vices or wrong things that would fit those categories. And he says that we as believers are to remove these things from our life. We are to lay them aside. We are to cast them off. And we are instead to have uh, the, the righteous garments that God wants in our life. Now, getting rid of these bad things is not what saves us. Rather, it's a sign that we are saved. As, as we uh, grow in our sanctification, we're no longer drawn to the filth of the world, but instead we're drawn to the word of God. The word save that is used here in verse 21 is in the aorist active tense. And what that means, it is a completed action. Last week, uh, Pastor Michael, as he talked about verse 18, talked about how our new birth comes through hearing the word of God. And how we respond to God's word in that great invitation of grace. How God is the one who draws us to himself. And as we read about God's word here, he gives us the picture. He says, the good news of the gospel is implanted. It is implanted in our heart. It is a picture of a garden where where seed has been sown. and, And as it abides in the soil and it begins to sink roots and it begins to grow and produce As the gospel is received and the right things are growing in our lives, the weeds of the world have difficulty taking over. I don't know if you've ever seen what a a really nice lush lawn looks like. Now, I'm not going to put a picture of my yard up here because that's the, the picture of the opposite. But if you drive around or you go by a golf course, in many cases, you see these beautiful, just lush lawns 
you know, these just picture-perfect green carpets. And the way that they get those is not so much by running around eradicating the weeds where they're pulling the weeds. Do you know how they get those type of lawns? They use something that is called like a weed and feed fertilizer. And the way that these weed and feed fertilizers type of work, the way that they work is they actually strengthen the root system. They actually begin to develop and, and as the, the right plants take over the soil, it pushes out the wrong type of plants. And you see here from the advertisement for one of these uh, fertilizers, it tells you, well, if you just do a little one-spot feeding, this is what you get. But if you do a more consistent two to three annual feedings, and, and if you get four, you know, every quarter, every seasonal feeding that is supposed to take place in time, what happens is the wrong things, the things we want to get rid of in our life, in our lawn, these weeds, uh, they get pushed out, they get eradicated because the right things have taken over. And this is the picture that we have here. As the word of God is implanted in our life, as we begin to abide in that relationship, Jesus Christ says that when we abide in him, we will become fruitful and our life will begin to, to produce the fruits and the things that he wants to see in our life. Now, unfortunately, the way that many Christians approach their spirituality is rather than feeding the right things, we focus on trying to kill off the wrong things. Have you ever played this game called whack-a-mole? You ever, you know how that game works? You stand there and oftentimes you've got a friend who has the mallet next to you and he's saying, I got these two over here. And, and, and the whole time you're like, you know, something's popping up in my life. And that's what we do as Christians. A sin shows up in our life and we run over there and we whack it or we yank it up or we, and, and we run all around trying to do this. And the picture that God has for us instead is he says that we should, we should have that abiding relationship. Not only as we come to faith in Christ and the word takes root, but then as we are are spending time in his word, if you look at our church vision statement, we say Wayside Chapel is a community rooted in the word, reaching out to the world, reproducing Christ's followers. And that second aspect where it says we are rooted in the word is what we as a church say our focus is to be about among those core principles. And the, the Bible calls Jesus Christ the living word. In John 1, 1, the word was with God. Jesus is the word. And we want people to come to a saving relationship where they have a personal relationship with Christ. And once they encounter the living word and they have Christ in their life, we are then to be abiding in the written word, God's Bible that he's given to us. And as we sink deep roots into the word, as we spend time in study and prayer and, and being, as James says, a doer of the things that we're hearing and learning, we will have this abiding and fruitful relationship. And this is what God wants us to be doing as believers. Having received the word in verse 21, we are told in verse 22 that we are not to be the kind of believers who just sit, soak, and sour. The goal as Christians is not to say, I have a big head full of knowledge. I have the Bible memorized. I have all this knowledge of the word. What James says is we're to be sponges, that once we soak it up, we're to go around and squeeze it out in the world. He says uh, in the New American Standard Translation of the Bible that I'm using, prove yourselves doers of the word. The Greek word prove here is geneste. And this word literally means to become. So what it reads here is, keep on becoming doers of the word. The Greek word for doers is in this substantive form. And what that means is it speaks of the whole person. 
mind, soul, spirit, emotions. We as believers become what God wants us to be. As he speaks of, he says this is what we are rather than just what we do. You know, I make periodic repairs around my house. But you would not want me advertising myself as a professional builder, right? I can do these things, but that's not who I am. And as Christians, many of us are those who mark our Bibles, but we don't let our Bibles mark us. And what he tells us is we are to be those who are not merely hearing the word. Remember that the word in that day was not available to most people in written form. They heard it. It was an oral teaching. And so James is saying to us today, as you read the Bible, as you listen to sermons, as you spend time in various studies, as you're hearing the word of God, he says, what are you doing with it? God wants his word to move from our head to our heart to our hands. Our beliefs should be seen in our behavior. When he says that we are not to be merely hearers, he uses a Greek word, akrates, here. It was used of those who sat passively in an audience, and they listened to a speaker or a singer. Maybe some of you have seen people in a college class, and they're auditing the class. There are those that are taking a class for credit, and there are others who are auditing. And this idea of what James is speaking of here speaks of those who would be auditing the class. They attend the lectures, but many of them aren't taking notes. They're not worried about the assignments. They're not worried about the upcoming final exam or other tests because when they audit the class, they are simply hearing the content, but they are, re- they are not responsible for any part of the assignments. And what many of us as Christians do at times in our life is we say, you know, I'm just kind of auditing the class. I come and I sit in the lectures I listen to the message. I peruse the Bible every now and then, but you know, I'm, I'm not really responsible for putting it into practice. And what James says is, no, we as Christians are not to be merely hearers, passive participants, but we are to be involved. We are to be living out what it is that we're learning. There was one college professor who was speaking to a colleague of his, and it was a graduate program, and he had a student in his class that was, was just very haphazard in his work. He was sloppy in the assignments that he turned in. And this one professor was, was surprised because he had been previously in this class of his colleague who was known to be a very particular uh, professor, and things had to be done just in the right ways. And so he went to his friend, and he said, um, I've got one of your students in my class, and I'm really surprised because of the type of work he's producing. And this other professor says, well, who is it? And when he mentioned the man's name, he said, oh, he, he was not one of my students. He simply attended my lectures. <laughs> the Bible tells us that as believers, we are to be disciples. The word means a learner. That we are to not only be those who, who hear and learn, but then we are to put it into practice. And brothers and sisters in Christ, as you look at your life today, would God say that you attended the lectures, but you were not one of his students? Are you someone who's simply auditing the material? James calls on us as believers to put into practice what it is that we're learning. Will Jesus say he saw you on Sundays sitting through the sermons or going to Bible studies? 
but from the way that you applied what you were taught, that you were not one of his students. When James speaks of hearing, remember, as I said, few had the Bible in their hands as you have the privilege of doing today. Does your Bible just collect dust at home? Or is it something that you're going through and listening to and reading and applying? As you look into your life today, how are you putting into practice what you've heard from God's word? Are you living out your beliefs? Do you realize that your life may be the only Bible that some people ever read? There are some people who will never pick up the written word of God. They may never walk through the doors of a church or attend a Bible study where you're at. But they see you in your workplace, in your schools, out on the street. And as they look at your life, is it any different from those around them? My daughter, Sarah, is in a, a freshman in high school this year. She's in the Engineering Technology Academy over at Roosevelt High School. It's a magnet program, and she's, she's in this uh, smaller pod, and then she's in among the other 4,000 students in this high school. And it's a new school for her, a new program, and as she's moving around from the various classes, kids are all, are all trying to learn who each other are, and she's around many kids she's never seen before in her life. They don't know who she is. And a couple of weeks into school, there was a, a young man in the class one day who came up to her afterwards and said, uh, are you a Christian? Now, Sarah's not sporting a big cross or Jesus loves me all over her books and things. She, she just looked at him and she said, yes, I am. Uh, how do you know? And he said, well, you don't cuss like all the other kids. Now, we've already seen that James says the absence of bad behavior in our life isn't something that makes us a believer. He will tell us when we get later in this book that we all sin in many ways. We still stumble. But what the Bible tells us in Matthew twelve thirty four is, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And as you look at your life and what is coming out of your mouth, does it reflect Christ? You know, when we're saved, we go from using the Lord's name in vain to sharing the good news about the Lord, don't we? And this is what God is calling on us to be. There are plenty of unsaved people who have clean language and vice versa, many Christians whose, whose mouth is not yet sanctified. But how we live is a witness to others. James 3, 2 says, we will still stumble in many ways. Sarah's not a perfect little girl. And yet the way she lives is different enough that other people in the environment that she's in where there's kind of this darkness all around says, there's some light coming out of your life. There's something about you that's different. What is it? And it's making them want to know more. Last year in the junior high school she was in, in a public setting as well, uh, two of her teachers started attending Wayside because they said, you're different than the other kids. What is it about you? And as you look at your life, do people at work, people on the base where you serve, people in your neighborhood or, or your, your mops group or the other things that you're in, do they look at you and say, there's something different about you? What, what is it? There's some light in your life that just kind of lights up the darkness of the world around us. And, and, and does it make them want to know more about who you are or why you're different? Is there something that is drawing them to the Savior? 
In verse 22, James says that those who are merely hearing the word but are doing nothing with it are deceiving themselves. Now, the Greek word used here was actually a mathematical word that was used to describe when somebody made a miscalculation. And when we as Christians are content with simply hearing the word and not doing anything with it, what God says to us is, friends, you've made a serious spiritual miscalculation. You're deceiving yourself. You've missed what God wants. The one who listens and does nothing with what he has heard is described as being like the man who looks in a mirror and forgets what he saw. Now, it's interesting. In in the Greek text here, he uses the word andre. Now, there are different words that are used. Andre is a word that speaks specifically of the masculine sex. It refers to men only. There's another word, anthropos, which can speak of men, but it can also speak of women. And he doesn't use anthropos here. He uses andre. And what he's doing, I think, is he catches the reader's attention. It caught mine as I was reading through the text because I said, why is he focusing just on a man looking in a mirror? And I think that James is saying, well, you know, guys are are the same from 2,000 years ago to today. They can look in a mirror and go, good enough. Uh, (laughs) You know, but a lady looks in a mirror, and if she sees a flaw or something, she's much more likely to linger. She's much more likely to to fix her face. I I saw this in my house one day. My my son, Zachary, he was nine at the time. He's he's sitting there, and and he had some food on his face. And I said, son, go, go clean your face. You've got some food on it. So Zachary jumps up, he runs into the bathroom. He's he's in and out of there in a flash. He comes bebopping back out. And he sits down and I look, I said, Zachary, you've got food on your face. No, I didn't, Dad. Actually, he said, uh-uh. I said, come with me. So I take him into the bathroom and I said, look in the mirror. And he goes like this. And I said, I took his little head and I turned it. I said, Zachary, look. Oh. Is that what we do? Are we those who quickly look into the mirror called the Bible? Or do we linger? Do we, do we look at God's word as, as maybe passing by a, a car with a fender? Have you ever checked yourself in you know, the fender of a car as you walk by? You know, in James' day, that's what mirrors were like. They didn't have the glass mirrors that we have. They had polished metal. So the best you got was kind of a distorted, dim reflection And when you looked in a mirror, you literally had to study your face or whatever it is you were trying to look at. And what James calls on us to do as believers is not be these hit-and-run type of Christians who have our verse-for-the-day type of thing or a quick this or that, and and we just glance in it like we're walking by a, a car fender. What he says is instead, think of one of those magnification mirrors that have the, you know, light around it. You know which ones I'm talking about? Where you lean in and you're looking and you're studying every little hair and every little wrinkle. And, you know, I know it's getting, I'm moving from preaching to meddling here. But as, as you think about that mirror, That's what God wants us to look like. Now, many in this service will remember the show Happy Days. Uh, I'll have to explain it a little more in the next service. But (laughs) in in Happy Days, you remember there was a character by the name of Arthur Fonzarelli, the Fonz. And do you remember what would happen whenever the Fonz would see a mirror? 
He'd go to the mirror to check his, his hair. Well, just in case you've forgotten, uh, this, is, this is a clip. You want to watch the fine while I check my hair? Huh? Yeah, we like the fine, but we got to get home. Oh, yeah, Kirk's curfew. I heard about that kid stuff. Well, too bad you won't be around to see Elvis's train. What Elvis train? Don't you watch John Cameron Swayze? Huh? <laughs> Elvis was drafted in the train. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look in a mirror, it's not, hey, it's, hey, whoa. (laughs) There's some work that needs to be done, right? And that's what God says about his word. He says when we look into it, it's not just to be looking good. He's to say, look and linger. Study it. Yeah, there are great areas in your life that look good. You're doing well in your walk with God. But what are the places that you can improve on? What are the things that you can change? What are the things that you can apply? You know, mirrors are honest little things. They don't gloss over our defects. They show every little detail, don't they? So why do we own mirrors? I mean, why do we want to put ourselves through that grief? The reason is because we know that if, if we don't check ourselves in a mirror when we walk out into the world without correcting the defects, that bed head or the other things that are going on, that there will be greater grief. As others look at us and go, what is wrong? Zachary, you've got food on your face, you know? Why aren't you fixing what you see? It's better to face the truth and make the changes that are needed. Now, sometimes what we do with the mirror of God's word is we don't like what we see, so we reject the mirror. It's like a, a, a native. There was a missionary in a back area, and he had this shaving mirror that he would use, and the natives always saw him looking into it. So one day, one of them said, Can, you know, I want to look in this mirror. And as he looked in the mirror and he saw his reflection for the first time in his life, he was so shocked by it, he threw it to the ground and beat it with his club and shattered it. Because he didn't like what he saw. And sometimes that's what people do with the Bible. They see something in it that convicts them of a sin or a change in their life. And what they do is they reject the mirror rather than changing what they see. We don't like that sermon. We don't like that study. We don't like that passage. Because what it does is it holds that mirror up to us and it says, this is a place that needs some attention in your life. Now, the changes we make are not merely to be external things. This isn't about slapping a little concealer or a base on our face and playing the game of being religious. Notice what James says here. He says this isn't about making sure the external stuff looks good. So as we take that selfie to post, we go, I'm looking good. What he says instead, we are to have a spiritual MRI that looks deep into the heart level, that reveals the defects that reveals the things in our life that need to be fixed. Throughout the scriptures, we see those who, as they encountered the truth of God and his word and his holiness, as they had that deep spiritual MRI, it showed them just who they really were. Think of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. As he encountered God and his holiness, he said in Isaiah 6, 5, "'Woe is me, for I am ruined.'" Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, as he gazed into the mirror, 
suddenly said, wretched man. Think of Paul who said, wretched man that I am. Who will save me from the body of this death? There was Peter who as he encountered Jesus Christ in the boat, he realized this is more than a mere man and a good teacher. And it says he, he fell at the Lord's feet and he said, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. As they gazed into the mirror of God and his word, the conviction was there and they responded to it. They didn't gloss it over or forget what they saw. Now, God didn't throw any of these men out. With Isaiah, what it says is he took a coal from the altar, had an angel come down and touch and purify his lips. And he said, you will be a messenger to share my word. You look at Peter, he became not just a follower and an apostle, but the one that Jesus said, you, Peter, are the rock that I will build my church on. Paul was another, a blasphemer, a a persecutor of Christians who was killing them, who became used to write much of the New Testament book that God has given to us through the pen of the Apostle Paul. And God wants to do that with us if we will turn to him and we will take an honest look at ourselves and say, you know, I am a sinner. I am far from you, God. I am not perfect. I've made a mess of my life. And if we will come to the cross where Jesus offers us his death as the payment for the penalty of sin we owe, it says we will be washed clean. We will be made a part of the family. And God will begin to grow and mature and use us. God wants to do the same thing with us if we will turn to him. James one twenty five through 26 tells us, But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Now, being religious is not what God is calling us to do here. You see that. James says this isn't about the ceremonial. This word is used to speak of the ceremonies, the religious gatherings that were taking place. Remember, Jesus was always just having conflicts with the religious leaders in his day. Read Matthew chapter 23. I wish we had time to just go through that passage. You can start around Matthew 23, 23 and see where Jesus says, you guys, you, you scribes, you Pharisees, you religious leaders, you're hypocrites, you're whitewashed tombs. He says, you guys look good on the outside but you're dead on the inside. You have all these external trappings of being religious. You know, I talk to people all the time who say, Roger, I'm I'm just not very religious. And I say, great. God doesn't want you to be religious. It's not about rules and ritual. It's about a personal relationship where you accept Jesus as your personal Savior. And then you respond out of love to God in changing your life. You don't do it to earn your way to God. The Bible's very clear. You cannot earn your way to God. What we earn by how we live our lives, it says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, there in Romans 6. And so God doesn't want us being religious. He wants us to have a relationship. Friends, if the reason you come to church is to be seen, or because you think you're checking off a box that is going to keep you out of, you know, the penalty box when you die, that isn't how it works. If that's your view of your relationship with God, James says your religion is worthless. Now, he doesn't say it's worthless as in not worth doing. The Bible is very clear that we are to come to church. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 10.25, Do not forsake assembling together as is the habit of some 
but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're told to gather together, to support, to encourage, to grow. You read Ephesians 4:11 and following and it says that God gave some as pastors and teachers. Why did he give pastors and teachers? Well, it says for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Do you remember James is talking about the maturity that God wants in us as believers? And as we abide under his word, as we bear up under those things, we develop those spiritual muscles. As we walk with him, as we go through things, we develop endurance and we're able to do more uh, and, and, and perform at a higher level as an athlete would, so to speak. And this is the goal for us. We come together to learn, to grow, to support and be matured. And then we are to go into the world as the hands and feet of Christ. God wants his word moving from our head to our heart to our hands. He tells us in verse 27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now, remember that in James' day in the first century, widows and orphans were the most helpless, most vulnerable of all society. They had no rights, Women who were widows could not own property. They had no legal standing in court. Orphans were those without any type of support. They were at the mercy and support of others. And so you can take this, while they are still a vulnerable and needed group in our day, we can broaden this to simply say that we are to help the helpless. You know, the big buzzword in our generation, if you don't know, is social justice. I mean, that's the big buzzword out there. Everybody's about social justice. And friends, guess what? God invented social justice. He's always been about helping the helpless. You read Proverbs 29, 7, and it says, The righteous is concerned for the rights of the poor. The wicked does not understand such concern. You know, at Wayside, we have many families that are living out this verse in many ways. We have a number of families here in our church who have adopted orphans, both internationally and domestically. We have a number of families that are fostering. We have a number of families that are involved in CASA, the, uh, the Child Advocate Services of San Antonio. We have a widow's ministry that supports women who are alone through encouragement luncheons, through other ways. We have an oil change ministry that changes the oil for widows and single moms in our church. We have men who serve uh, not only in that type of ministry, but through the Amen ministry, which uh, deals with practical physical needs, uh, little handyman repairs, basic things, also for our deployed troops. When their spouses are here alone and something goes wrong, we scholarship kids to Christian camps. We have a long-term partnership with Sam Ministries, San Antonio Metro Ministries, where we help families that are homeless or are on the verge of being homeless. We have partnerships with pro-life ministries who advocate for the pre-born, those who are not able to help themselves. We have abortion recovery ministries redeemed and restored for those who have gone through the tragedy of an abortion. We have partnerships uh, with Church Under the Bridge, and we serve in the Meals on Wheels ministry to help homebound individuals, who seniors, we have a, a respite type of ministry as well that comes along families dealing with chronic illness. 
We have Manna Meals Ministry that helps individuals who have had surgery or sickness and, and just need some, some food to be brought into the house. We have um, the we support people through the food pantry that is here at our church. We have the Agape Ministry that helps with financial needs of families that are struggling. I could spend much more time talking about the various ministries that are taking place in and through Wayside, in and through the people who make up Wayside. Wayside is not this building. The people of Wayside are the church. And we as believers are called to be those who have been transformed are then to be involved in putting feet to our faith. As you look at your life today, are you doing that? As you look at your life today, are you merely a hearer or are you a doer of the word? I want to close with this illustration from Chuck Swindoll. It's in his book, Improving Your Serve. And he's speaking of a different passage in the Bible, but I think it fits well here. He says, let's pretend you work for me. He says, in fact, you are my assistant in a company that is growing rapidly. I'm the owner and I'm interested in expanding overseas. Now to pull this off, I've made plans to travel abroad. I'm going to move my family overseas to Europe for six months or more to get the new branch office established. I make all the arrangements and I leave you in charge of this busy stateside organization. Now, I tell you, I will write to you regularly and give you direction and instructions. I leave and you stay. Now, months pass and there is this constant flow of letters from Europe back to the home headquarters that you're receiving. And I spell out all my expectations. And finally, one day I return and I drive down to the office. And I'm stunned. As, as I pull up to the building, uh, the grass and weeds have grown up high. Some of the windows along the street have been broken out. I walk into the, into the front of the office, and the receptionist is sitting there painting her nails at the desk. The trash is overflowing. The floors haven't been vacuumed in who knows how long. I look around, and, and, and there's nobody around, but I hear laughter coming from the back. I go down to the crowded lounge area, and, and I ask, where, where are you, the one I left in charge? And people just simply point down the hall. I think he's down there. And as I walk down the hall and I turn into what used to be my office, you're in there playing a game with the sales manager. And there's a TV going with uh, soap operas that are on. And the sales manager gets up to leave. And... And I look at you and I say, what in the world is going on? And you respond, well, what do you mean? And I say, well, look at this place. Didn't you get any of my letters? Letters. Oh, yeah, we got every one of them. As a matter of fact, we have letter studies every Friday since you left. We've even divided all the personnel into small groups and discussed many of the things you wrote. You'll be pleased to know that a few of us have actually committed to memory some of your sentences and paragraphs. Great stuff, those letters. Great stuff indeed. Friends, we have a letter from the owner sent to us through the pen of James. And what God says to us is, these are my expectations. This is what I want to see in your life as those who belong to me. Do not merely be hearers, but doers of the word. Will you join me, please, as we close in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your word. First, for the living word, your son, Jesus Christ. 
the one who came to take my place and the place of everyone here to pay that penalty of death, that penalty that we owed for our sins. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone here today who's not yet received your great gift of new life, that today would be the day where they become a doer, where they take that step of faith and they just say, God, I'm a sinner and I'm far from you and I want to come home. I thank you, God, that you died for me, that you paid that price, that penalty of death that I owed. Today, Jesus, I'm turning from my sin into you to be my Savior. Thank you for that great gift of new life. Father, for the rest of us who have received that great gift of new life, may we be those who are not merely auditing the class, those who simply hear your word and say, great stuff, those letters. Father, may we be those who put feet to our faith, that we begin to be the light in the darkness as you've called us to be. Send us out now, Lord, into the world to be your witnesses, to point people to the way home. We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.